sometimes we believe because they are not legitimate that the people who vote for them are not legitimate. That's right? a really good point. And that's a problem in democracy, yeah, right? absolutely. Again, I may not like the leader or the party that the people elect, but mm-hmm. you know, that's, if without that, mm-hmm. then I don't know what a democracy means. everyone. I'm Francesca Gortsunian, and welcome to Global. Today, instead of looking at one country, we're actually going to shift a little bit. We're going to take a look at a collection of 28 countries and nearly 500 million people. That's right, we're talking about the European Union. For those of you following the news around Brexit or tracking the rise of new political parties in Europe, this episode will talk about what the implications of these changes will be. Specifically, much of our conversation will focus on the upcoming May 23rd through 26th parliamentary elections. If you have not listened to our podlet about political party fatigue, I truly urge you to download it because the theme from that podlet greatly ties to the theme of this episode. The European Parliament doesn't receive much coverage, so for those of you who aren't experts, the European Parliament is a legislative body of the EU that is in charge of selecting commission presidents and also oversees legislation and budgeting. It makes it a very powerful and the only directly representative body in Europe. For EU members, May 26 will be a huge deal. As the world watches, we are starting to see a glimpse into some of the major challenges not only facing the EU, but also facing political parties and elections around the world. For this episode, I first spoke with Ryan Heath, Politico's Europe editor, who gave us an introduction into the dynamics taking place ahead of this vote. Let's take a listen. Before we dive into the upcoming elections, let's set the stage a little bit for our audience. For much of its history, we have the centrist coalitions like the European People's Party or the EPP and the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats or the SND who have controlled politics in the European Parliament. So we have the elections that are coming up in May, right, that will take place between May 23rd and 26th, and those elections are predicted to shake things up a bit. What kind of shifts in power do you anticipate resulting from these elections? There's probably two main shifts. So the European Parliament has had direct elections for 40 years now, since 1979. And at every one of those elections until now, those two parties you mentioned, they've had a governing majority. It doesn't mean they've always worked together in a coalition, but if they worked together, they could always get something through in a compromised form. And what's clear now uh, from every opinion poll and poll of polls that we've conducted in the last two years is that they simply won't get more than 46% of the vote together. And given that those parties don't always work as 100% solid voting blocks, what it means is we're really looking at the need for four parties to cooperate uh, on any piece of legislation in the future or for nominating people like the European Commission president or getting a set of European commissioners installed by the end of the year. So that's a a fairly radical departure from the current situation, where with two parties or maybe three at a stretch, you got things done. Now you need a minimum of four. And then within that parliament, you are going to have a much larger group of Eurosceptic voices. So the people that maybe also get the label populist or nationalist. Mm -hmm. They're not always from the right wing or the far right, but they often are. And they're looking at getting something in the order of 250 seats out of 705. Mm -hmm. And what's probably going to be different about them this time 
is that uh, until now, very few of them have been diligent legislators. They've been content to throw rocks or to essentially say they oppose the EU, so they're not going to participate. And that's going to be different now because most of those parties have realised from the Brexit process that it's not a winning strategy to say that you want your country out of the EU. So they're going to have to decide, will they sort of walk the talk of reforming the EU or will they sort of just be silent on the sidelines? Okay, this actually sets up the rest of the conversation very nicely as you've hit on a bunch of topics that I wanted to bring up. I wanted to talk a bit more about the political trends in Europe that have contributed to the success of anti-establishment political forces. What is your take on how those political trends have come to be so popular and successful in Europe as of late? Yeah, it's due to several reasons. The first is obviously related to the fact that uh, much of Europe has been suffering from either recession or very slow growth for a decade now. Mm -hmm. And it's not that itself automatically causes social unrest or big changes in voting. But I think when you combine it with factors like the example set by Donald Trump's election in 2016 and the Brexit process, what it shows people who might have been feeling that level of anger or frustration at the EU or their political class in general, uh, they now have a new example to work around. They've also got new digital platforms to use as organising tools. Mm -hmm. And the EU has been slower than other countries like the United States or my home country, Australia, in adopting some of those tools and platforms. But as time has progressed, and you've seen these examples from other parts of the world, essentially the people who want to express their anger at the establishment, they've got new momentum, they've got new tools to do it with. And even though it takes a bit longer to see those effects across Europe, uh, you're starting to see it. And then the other thing that I'd really throw into the mix is what's referred to as the refugee crisis mm -hmm. from the summer of 2015 uh, going on into 2016. Mm -hmm. And that was a very real crisis for some countries. It was more imagined or feared in other countries rather than a, a kind of lived reality uh, for them. A lot of Europeans started to get very agitated about what they saw as a, a lack of control either over the politics of their country or the actual literal border security of their country. Mm -hmm. And that started to, to feed into these different increasing levels of popularity for, for some of those parties. So assuming these elections go as predicted, what do you think the new parliamentary coalitions are going to look like? Well, it can go in two different directions, and it can also be either a series of ad hoc coalitions or something more permanent. So I think the European People's Party have the most options about where they would like to put their votes. And I should say in general that no party is going to get more than 25% of the vote overall. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, it's reasonable in comparison to some national parliament election results, but it obviously doesn't compare to a two-party system or the sort of figures that uh, you get in the United States. Mm -hmm. So what it means is the EPP is almost certainly going to be the biggest party, but in general terms is quite weak. Because of where they sit in the political spectrum, they can either turn towards a progressive bloc and say that they'd like to be the leader somehow of that sort of centrist pro-EU bloc, which would stretch from them on the centre-right through to the Greens on the left, or else they could try and pick off what they or others might deem as the acceptable faces of Euroscepticism. They're the sort of people I'd call soft Eurosceptics. Mm -hmm. And the EPP could sort of seek some of their votes in addition to other parties in the centre and try and build a coalition that way. Those are sort of the, the two options that the EPP can play with. 
if you are the socialist, you don't really have a choice. You just have to try and build up a left block and hope that no one else can unite another block on the right. If something that was kind of trying to build in 450 votes out of 700 in the parliament, if they were able to construct that, then you can see, well, that's essentially a very broad government of pro-European unity, and that could last for, for a couple of years or five years. The factor that we haven't really factored in is that at least half of the members of the European Parliament uh, will be new. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a big turnover as well as a fragmentation in Brussels. What's the demographic of the people who are looking to replace those who are going into retirement? Are we looking at younger candidates, younger representatives that are more in touch with younger Europeans, or is it more of the same? I, I think we are, actually. Um, and that's because some of the, the parties that have got more energy, and I don't say that this is true across all of Europe, but certainly you look at something like the German Greens, for example. Mm -hmm. They're doing very well, and uh, they don't represent a green wave across Europe, but they're a quite young party, and so you will see um, definitely splashes of, of that youth, and I think the average age of MEPs will drop below 50 for the first time. Oh, wow. That's going to feed into things like the culture in the building, mm -hmm. because there's a real split at the moment between the younger more socially inclusive people. So whatever party they're from, they tend to be more socially liberal and they certainly wouldn't think it was acceptable to be harassing young staffers and advisors, for example. And then you've got an older set of people who kind of think, well, this is all the rough and tumble of politics. This is all cultural differences. It's political correctness gone mad that people want to complain about this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think there will be a bit of a generational shift there where people start to put their foot down and say, hey, it's 2019. We need to have a different culture in this building. I liked your reference to the soft Euro skeptics. Who are the harder Eurosceptics that we should be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, that's certainly the group that's being led by Matteo Salvini. Okay. Now, his Italian League party, it's risen to the top of the polls in Italy, and it's on track, actually, to become the biggest single national party in the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. And I hope listeners can bear with me as I explain that. Generally speaking, things are decided along ideological lines, and you exist within an alliance that suits your ideology. But of course, within that, if you're one from one of the bigger countries or from a party that does very well, then you've got bigger weight within your alliance. And so the Italian League are on track for getting something like 28 or 29 seats, which puts them in line to be either as big or bigger than the German uh, Christian Democratic Union. That's a bit of a shift, this idea that a Eurosceptic party could be the biggest single force within the parliament. And Matteo Salvini has decided, OK, it's time for me to take the reins over from Marine Le Pen and the French National Rally Party. So in early April, has announced a new alliance. And it's a bit of window dressing because it's a lot of the same old people from his current alliance with the National Rally. And he appears to have dragged the National Rally along into the alliance. But he's broadening it out a little bit. He's got people like the True Finns and the Danish People's Party to sign up. And it looks like they could be the biggest Eurosceptic group. And I think the other thing that it's important to mention here is that if all of the Eurosceptics were uniting, whether around a soft or a hard leader, you would see them as the biggest group within the parliament. But they've always suffered from divisions and they haven't been able to get their act together in that respect. Mm -hmm. So they kind of underperform. They punch below their weight. And one of the reasons for that is they have big differences over how to handle Russia, for example. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they, they face the, the typical problems that if you are a hardline nationalist, you tend not to get along with people from other countries. And that inhibits your ability to have a really big impact in a cross-border parliament like this. So let's say that these Eurosceptic parties are able to 
see through their differences and come together and are extremely successful or just even remotely a little bit successful during these elections. What impact would that have on hot topic issues such as, you know, the <laughs> migration crisis from 2015 to 2016? What would a Eurosceptic heavy parliament look like in terms <laughs> of policy reactions after? They can have a direct and an indirect influence. And I think the Eurosceptics have for a long time now had a fairly strong indirect influence. And by that, I mean that they're able to sort of orchestrate a lot of the public debate on issues that they care about, like migration. They get other leaders, whether on the centre or the centre-left, to co-opt parts of their ideas out of fear that those parties will destroy their own voting base if they don't mimic some of what the nationalists are saying and doing. And I think that that will be amplified if they do better in the elections. Then, of course, you have the situation where just by having sheer weight and number of votes, they can be quite effective at blocking different policies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they're going to be able to coalesce and force some kind of positive or proactive agenda. But, you know, if they can all just stick together and say they really dislike something that the European Commission is proposing, they can really be quite successful there, I think. If they want to get clever and start being hardworking legislators, I think they can really start to shape some of the actual texts that come out of the entire system. And they might even be able to do horse trading. Because those Eurosceptics have just been a vocal minority up until now, they are mostly locked out of the key positions inside the parliament and certainly across the other EU institutions. And that might change this time around. Mm -hmm. What are the implications for other multilateral organizations such as NATO? That's a tricky question because I think that the more Eurosceptic or nationalist governments that we've got at the moment in Europe, they tend to be quite vocal and strong on defense. Mm -hmm. So Poland, for example, is one of the countries making real efforts to make sure it complies with the NATO defense spending targets. So that's not a practical problem. If anything else, it kind of aligns quite neatly with, with what NATO's goals are. I guess the problem becomes if you have people who are getting too friendly with Russia. One thing that we've tiptoed around a bit is Brexit. How has the whole Brexit narrative played into these elections and EU politics in general? Yeah, it is kind of the nightmare that never goes away. <laughs> so from a, a Eurocrat perspective, this is obviously something horrible. They hate the idea of it. They wish it could be reversed. They kind of resign to the fact that it's eventually going to happen one way or another. But they certainly are kind of sick of thinking about it and have a very heavy heart about the whole situation. And then there's just a general sense of uncertainty. You know, it doesn't feed faith in general political institutions across Europe if you have parliaments that just simply can't make choices, if you have political establishments at war with themselves. It kind of just leaves a bad feeling across the continent. And then, of course, the people who voted for Brexit had legitimate concerns, mm -hmm. and it raises issues of how functional a democracy can be. Brexit has demonstrated the EU's power by highlighting how deeply integrated individual countries are particularly surrounding issues of trade. For someone who's listening to our podcast who may not be very well aware, can you give a little bit of context on the role 
that the EU plays on some of the most pressing issues today. The EU's strongest powers are in antitrust, or a broader set of powers that we just refer to as competition powers. And so that's the core element of the EU's uh, single market, where it acts as one economic rule regime across the continent. And they've got a lot of executive power there, where they can fine companies billions of dollars in any individual decision, and they're not afraid to do it. And then when it comes to trade policy, the EU negotiates on behalf of all of the countries. There are ways that the EU coordinates tax policy, for example, on sales tax, value-added tax, but it, it does it in a way that allows a veto to any country that's not happy with uh, whatever proposal is coming forward. And then the EU has kind of been expanding its powers in a lot of other areas. My last question for you would be, why should an average American be concerned with what happens to the European Union politically? Politically, the European Union is probably the strongest partner of the United States globally. There might be others like Australia who would say that their hearts are closer to the Americans. But in terms of strategic weight and in terms of the, the economic value of the relationship, Europe definitely stands out as number one. And so there are costs involved in that. I do think Europeans probably don't pull their weight when it comes to the collective defence of the US and, and, and Europe. But uh, the EU makes for up for it in other ways. So it's a very complex relationship. And, and this particular election, it's the second biggest election in the world. More people will be voting here than, than in a US presidential election. And I think only India beats it overall. Oh, wow. So in a world where you have a lot of strong men, usually men, who are not really allies of democracy and where there's going to be a lot of geopolitical instability and risk in the coming decades, Europe is kind of a safe harbour. It's kind of the people you want to keep close, uh, even if you want to fight with them like family sometimes. That would yeah. be my advice. Thank you very much for your time, and it was wonderful having you on the podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much. Next up, we hear from Jan Zahardil, member of the European Parliament for the Czech Republic. Mr. Zahardil offered us a really interesting perspective as to why some people might be hesitant to have a more closely integrated Europe. Mr. Zahardil, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We really appreciate your time and your insight on this conversation. By way of background, can you tell us first a little bit about how you became involved in politics in your home country and in the European Union? It's a, a rather long story. I ran for the first time for a parliamentary seat in 1992. Then uh, I started to work for a political party as international secretary. Then I ran again for a seat in 1998, and I was elected, then once re-elected, and then in 2004, when my country, which then was not Czechoslovakia, but the Czech Republic, joined the European Union, I ran for a seat in the European Parliament, and I was elected, and since that, re-elected twice, and now I'm running again, so this is my fourth bid for a seat in the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. That actually sets the stage nicely as we start discussing the upcoming elections. I work on the Middle East and North Africa region, so I had to do a lot of, shall we say, homework for this episode. From my research, it seems that the EU has been dominated by centrist coalitions for most of the past 60 years. But with the upcoming elections on May 23rd, it's very likely that this makeup will change. Um, what kind of shifts in power do you anticipate as a result of these upcoming elections? It might be very interesting 
because uh, since I've been dealing with European affairs since 1998, the whole political business in European Union was run basically by two big political families. I would call both of them, as we use the term in Europe, a federalist parties. In Europe, federalist means something different than in the United States. Federalist, in our understanding, means those parties who want to shift more power to a central level, Brussels, want to strengthen European institutions. And not everybody is happy about it. Now, it seems, but both will, will suffer some losses and uh, they will not be able to create uh, a majority in the European Parliament again, which creates uh, some hope or a vacuum or new chance for some new political parties or new political families, including my own, the European Conservative family, to jump into the race and to try to influence things much more than any time in the past. Referring back to the power that the Federalist parties yielded until now, I guess, how exactly has that power manifested itself? How have we seen that power be implemented until now? I think that their power is decreasing. They are losing ground. Of course, they are getting nervous about this because they haven't been used to that. So they started panicking. They say all the time that they need to fight nationalists and populists and, you know, mm -hmm. anti-Europeans. Well, the problem is that not everyone who criticizes European integration is anti-European. Mm -hmm. I think that to criticize European institutions and some aspects of European integration is pretty much legitimate. And to describe those people and those political parties anti-European is completely misleading and it, it uh, misses the point. So now I think we are on the beginning of a very long process that will somehow reshuffle the political landscape in Europe towards less centralized, uh, less bureaucratic, less regulatory, but more flexible, more multi-speed European Union, uh, which also is, is my idea of European integration. And I think we are we are just at the, the beginning of that a rather long way. I, I do not wish this to happen in some disruptive or re revolutionary way. I would prefer very much the evolutionary way. And I think that it is also a big challenge for some of our overseas partners, including United States, to understand better what's going on in Europe these days, because U.S. administrations were used for last 20 or 30 years that everything went in one direction. Mm -hmm. Now they would have to adjust themselves that times they are changing. You raised a really interesting point when you said that just because you question or you challenge the European Union does not mean that you are anti-European Union. And that's something that came up a lot in my research, Euroscepticism or Eurorealism. How do you feel about that term? Is that accurate? Do you think that that accurately portrays trends in the European Union as to how Europeans are feeling towards the EU? I'm not a big fan of those labels like Eurosceptic or even Eurorealist, although I would rather call myself Eurorealist than Eurosceptic. And the truth is that European integration has brought a lot of great achievements and benefits for all member states, but in time, uh, the European Union, and in, in particular European institutions, and uh, also some member states, started to project their own interests into the very idea of uh, European integration.
And the problem was that those ideas were pursued mostly by some stronger or bigger member states, some European institutions like Commission and Parliament, and also some political streams like the Federalist one. But they are not just the only representatives of European integration. We are all in that. We all who are born in Europe and who live in Europe and who want to improve Europe, we all uh, need to have our say as well. I can call myself Eurorealist. Yeah, that's true. I'm opposing extremes. I'm opposing uh, anti-Europeans or anti-European radicals who want to dismantle the European Union or want to leave. But on the other hand, I also oppose pro-EU fanatics that want to unify and integrate almost everything. And this is not the way that we could find a way forward. In your opinion, how would a less centralized EU engage other countries and multilateral organizations on the global stage? I have to admit, I don't believe too much into a Europe being a global superpower. I don't think that this is necessary. I think that we have achieved a lot. We are definitely, economically, we are still doing pretty well. We are probably the largest single market in, in the world uh, when it comes to international organization or multilateral organization. And uh, I think that we should try to, to be part of some wider complex. I think that US and, and Europe are two sides of one coin. Both are parts of uh, Euro-Atlantic civilization, and they should rather work together. And uh, it doesn't make any sense for Europe to try to transform itself into a, a different center of global power, which is uh, somehow challenging the, the role of the United States. This is the way I believe EU should not, uh, should not pursue. That's a really interesting perspective to hear. You mentioned anti-Europeans, and the first country that comes to mind when you say that is obviously the United Kingdom. I would say that one of the biggest examples of Euro-realism or Euro-skepticism or anti-federalism is basically what's developing in the United Kingdom around Brexit. So how has the Brexit narrative played into these upcoming elections and EU politics in general? First, on UK and Brexit, we have to admit that UK has been always, since the very beginning, in particularly special position vis-à-vis -vis the continent of Europe. They always took uh, Europe uh, mostly as a single market and economic entity, and they were not happy with a political ambitions of uh, European Union. I think that Brexit at the end gives a very bad evidence to the process of the European integration, because to lose one of the eco economically strongest and uh, politically most powerful members of the club inevitably leads to a question What's wrong with the club mm -hmm. when someone like United Kingdom is leaving? Many of us, particularly those who are coming from Central Eastern Europe, are not happy about this development. We feel that we are losing a big friend and ally. We are a bit afraid that once UK leaves, it will shift the political or geopolitical equilibrium on the continent and gives much more power to this Franco-German axis. And this is another reason why Central Eastern Europeans are probably more sensitive to continuing the U.S. presence in Europe, because 
We do not want to be run just by big European guys that speak very often about European values and European interests. But behind that, they mean, first and foremost, their own national interest and their own agenda. I hope we are at the beginning of a very new era in the history of European integration. First, because of Brexit. Secondly, because of some Eurosceptic or Eurorealist movements rising and getting more and more ground. And all old-fashioned or outdated Federalist forces are losing. And I believe that at the end, we will find ourselves in a situation which will be much, much more comfortable for all of us, which would allow a individual member states to pursue also their own interests whenever they feel it is necessary, uh, which will allow them to integrate in various groupings according to their own wishes, which also would lead U.S. representation whatever it will be, Republican or Democrat, to understand better what's going on in Europe these days and to adjust uh, itself to this new situation and to this new paradigm of European integration in the future. That leads me to another question I had for you about Russia and, to a lesser extent, China's interest and perhaps influence in these elections. As the European Parliament, how do you see or perceive if any, attempts by Russia and China to influence the direction of these elections in May? This is a really interesting question because there's a lot of talks and speculations about, uh, you know, fake news and Russian intelligence right. into elections here and there everywhere. Uh, look, as, as someone who, who's coming from uh, Eastern Europe, I spent first 26 years of my life under the communist rule in former Czechoslovakia. So I know very well how former Soviet, now Russian intelligence could work, what kind of disinformations they are able to spread. But I believe that whatever they do still can, and they do those things, no doubt about it. They are trying to influence the situation. I have no doubts about it. But with my own life experience, I can still insist that this will have, at the end, a very limited impact on the general public opinion about, about politics. Because basically, it is, at the end, it is driven by their domestic experience rather than by some interference from, from abroad. So I do not underestimate that, those efforts of Russian intelligence or trolling farms or fake news factories and, and, and things like that. But at the same time, I do not overestimate it. I still have a deep trust into some common sense of electorate. I don't think that at the end, the influence of spreading of fake news or Russian intelligence or disinformation propaganda could be that strong as some people think. On China, this is a different story. I think that China has mostly economic interests in Europe. I don't think that China is trying to undermine the process of European integration per se. They are trying to invest in Europe. They invest nearly 50 billion of US dollars in Europe every year. Most frequent recipients are still Germany and, and France and the uh, UK as well. To put China and Russia into one basket uh, would be a mistake. I think that those two countries, those two powers have sometimes very divergent interests, sometimes even a contradictory interest. And as, as someone who's coming from, from Eastern Europe, I'm much less nervous about China 
than I am about Russia. I think that Russia still has some kind of neo-imperial appetite, particularly to their former satellites, while China has a different type of interest in Europe. I even think that from US, you can observe very easily that Europe is also much stronger and much sharper vis-a-vis -vis Russia than vis-a-vis -vis China, where EU doesn't follow that very strict policy of, for instance, Trump administration. So these are two different stories. I would differentiate between them. I myself, I am concerned more about Russia than about China. Mm -hmm. I do not underestimate, neither overestimate Russian influence in Europe. I think we have to take it seriously. But on the other hand, I don't think that it is such a threat or, or such a danger like time to time presented by media or politicians. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Zahradil. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure on my side. Thank you very much. Finally, we chat with IRI's very own Jan Suracek. Jan is IRI's Senior Director for Transatlantic Strategy. In this interview, Jan brought it all together with commentary on the importance of the strategic relationship between the EU and the U.S. Before we dive into the upcoming elections that will take place between May 23rd and 26th, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. let's set the stage for our audience first. Inform me about what the role of the European Parliament is and what power does it actually yield? It's a good question because it's changed over time. In the early days, the European Parliament wasn't even directly elected. The European Parliament only went to direct elections in 1979. Before that, everybody who sat there was sent by the nation states. As the electoral system has changed, so too has the role of the parliament. And over time, more and more competences have been given to the parliament. And they include influence over who is selected as president of the European Commission. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of authority over national legislation in the member states. There's a lot more say over purse strings. In the end, the people that represent the member states in the European Parliament are, of the entire system, the closest to real people in real places. For much of its 60-year history, the centrist coalitions have controlled politics in the European Parliament. So these elections in May are predicted to shake things up a little mm -hmm. bit, correct? Mm -hmm. What kind of shifts in power do you anticipate seeing as a result of these elections? One of the reasons that the big center-right and center-left parties for so many years have been able to dominate the scene is that people don't much invest themselves in European Parliament elections because they don't understand what difference could potentially obtain if a different group of people were running the place. To the vast majority of the 500 million people or so who, who live in Europe, the Parliament is maybe the most democratic of all of the EU institutions, but still very, very little understood. The bottom line is that we don't know what it's going to look like in mm -hmm. the future because we've only ever had these sort of big party groups. Yeah. I mean, there's a bigger question to be discussed about how those groups are breaking down all around Europe. That leads to these new emerging parties and groups that we think we may see. Some of them have an interest in blowing the union up. So I was going to say, tell me a bit more about those parties that we consider anti-establishment, mm -hmm. right? Anti-EU, mm -hmm. Eurosceptic, however you want to phrase it. Can you mm -hmm. just talk to me a bit more about those parties and their rise to the stage? We try to talk uh, here in the Transatlantic Strategies Division at IRI about anti-systemic rather than anti-establishment parties. Okay. And the reason is that, um, you know, even in the United States, there are large parts of the Republican Party and the Democrat Party that I would argue are anti-establishment, right? Mm. Nobody likes Washington. You know, that is a situation that we're seeing all across the transatlantic space. But just because you don't like a particular set of politicians doesn't mean that you oppose the system as such. People are opposed to the establishment that they see running 
our democracies doesn't mean that they're opposed to the system mm. necessarily, right? I mean, mm. I can disagree with a given president of the United States or a given Congress. It doesn't mean I'm opposed to the system. That makes sense. And I think what we're seeing now coming up, particularly in these European parliament elections, is parties that are opposed fundamentally to the system. Okay. Not just to the current class that's running it, mm -hmm. which I would call anti-establishment, okay. but people who are looking to really blow the system up mm -hmm. because they believe that the European institutions that have been created and now lasted uh, since the end of World War II are fundamentally flawed and acting against the interests of the nation state in which these parties operate. There's also, I think, and we have to be careful about this, a mistake that we all make is that somehow these parties are inherently illegitimate. And You're I think, saying that they actually are, or we believe that they I are? I think we believe that they are. Mm -hmm. And and frankly, sometimes we believe because they are not legitimate that the people who vote for them are not legitimate. That's right? a really good and point. And that's a problem in democracy, yeah, right? absolutely. Again, I may not like the leader or the party that the people elect, but mm -hmm. you know, that's if without that, mm -hmm. then I don't know what a democracy means. Mm -hmm. And uh, the truth is that vast parts of our populations across Europe and America are fundamentally frustrated with what they've been given. Mm -hmm. And they're looking for ways to make that frustration known. And the best, you know, most immediate, most visible way to express that frustration is at the ballot box. A trend that I noticed in some recent interviews was interest by foreign countries in this anti-system movement, shall we say. And I'm speaking notably of Russia and China. Could you talk about... I'd probably throw Iran in there as well. Okay, well, that hasn't come up yet, actually. Could you then discuss all three of those countries sure. and not only th what they get out of this involvement, but the extent to which they are involved in this mm -hmm. movement? Um, you know, a lot has been made of what the Russian Federation has done uh, in various elections across Europe in the last four or five years. I don't believe personally that they have any specific candidate that they want to see win or that they have any specific party that they want to see win. What they want is chaos. Aren't they funding some? Though? Sure, but you know. Um, but it doesn't matter who it well, is. Well, just... again, I think they would probably fund whoever would take the money in okay. order to cause chaos and to reduce citizen trust in the system, mm -hmm. right? Because that's fundamentally what they want. They want the system to collapse. So they are, in essence, anti-systemic as yeah. well. Because the system that we're talking about was created by the Americans and the Western Europeans in the aftermath of World War II. Mm -hmm. Extended then, of course, to include the new member states of the European Union and NATO after 1989, mm -hmm. which was an extension of a system that they fundamentally, inherently dis disagree with. Uh, we just talked about how these systems are democratic, and if you take, you know, if you take the elections away, then then they're not. And then, and of course, elections, free elections, are what people like Vladimir Putin fear the most. Mm -hmm. Because while they may be able to manipulate election in one given year, over time, when the system, when their system doesn't deliver for their people, they will be brought down. So tell me more about uh, Chinese and Iranians. Yeah, so the Chinese and the Iranians. For most people in Europe, of course, Russia is the very near neighbor. There are millions of people still alive today who you know, have memory of what it meant to have Russia engaged in European affairs. And it was not positive. Mm -hmm. China and Iran are a different thing. The Chinese don't seem to, to want to invest directly in, in parties, but they certainly do invest in relationships. And, uh, you know, as one, I'd highlight the 16 plus one framework, which I think is really interesting. 16 new member states of the European Union and one, China, mm -hmm. in this ongoing dialogue that's been set up now to identify ways in which China and the political parties and political leaders in the region can work more closely together. Largely, that has meant 
um, trying to find ways to bring Chinese investment into the region. Hungary, I think, is a classic example of this. Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, has been, I think, at least the informal leader on the Central and Eastern European side of these of this 16 plus 1 framework, involved in a number of bilateral visits that have brought the, the Hungarian leadership to Beijing and the Chinese leadership to Budapest. And of course, the Chinese influence is in building the infrastructure that they need to get from the Mediterranean, so the ports in Greece, up through Central Europe to Poland and Germany, which is where the real money is for them to sell their products. So they've invested in a number of infrastructure projects, beginning with the port of Piraeus in Greece, which of course is also in the European Union, all the way up through Serbia and a highway and a train line to Budapest, and now most recently in Poland. It doesn't appear, at least at the on the surface, that China has a direct influence in political outcome, but I think it's really interesting to look at what decisions individual member states of the EU have taken, for example, on the way you handle Tibet after going down the path of engagement with China. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese influence in the electoral system in, in Europe, I think, is a lot, frankly, more subtle and not as, you know, if I can be blunt, ham-handed as the Russians. Yeah. Iran is an interesting sort of subsection, particularly now with the American decision to pull out of the JCPOA. The Iranian government, from what I can see, has really stepped up its effort to uh, put out the uh, pro-JCPOA message Okay. and to try to ensure that uh, agreement continues to be supported by the countries in Europe which are signatories to it. Uh, there's lots of accusation, much, much more difficult to trace than, again, the sort of ham-handedness of the Russians. If the Russians are going to give money to Marine Le Pen in France, they'll pretty much just say so. Mm -hmm. Iran is a different set of issues. So I would look at, for example, the connections between Pablo Iglesias, who runs Podemos in Spain. He used to be a broadcaster for Press TV, which, of course, is the Iranian government uh, broadcaster. It's a much smaller effort, but, you know, I think questions that at least deserve to be asked. Let's talk a bit more about the impact of these elections on other, on NATO and other multilateral mm -hmm. organizations. Mm -hmm. The truth is that among the outsiders, right, those who have not held power so far, so these new entrants, whatever we call them, their policy is all over the map. Right. You know, some of them are on the right of the spectrum economically, some mm -hmm. are on the left, some are on the right of the spectrum with regard to regulation, some are on the left, mm -hmm. some are anti-American, some are pro-American, therefore, you know, you, you have to ask the subsequent question about what the future of NATO looks like in a situation where anti-transatlantic parties gain ground. The underlying criticism of the anti-systemic parties is that the EU itself, as a multilateral organization, is fundamentally flawed, right? Because many of the of its opponents uh, these days, I think, would ally themselves or align themselves under the banner of sovereignty or sovereignism, that the nation state is the most effective way for guaranteeing the quality of life and standards of living of a group of people, mm. citizens of that nation state. So multilateralism in and of itself for this group of people and parties is bad. Mm -hmm. right? And you see this in the United States as well. People who question the United States engagement in UNESCO, for example. You know, there is uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, a fundamental distrust of organizations over which uh, we as voters in our countries have no control. Those who would seek to undermine those institutions, and I'm not suggesting that those institutions are bad, but there are certainly people on the left and the right, the extremes of the left and the right, that have sort of set down a path of trying to undo nation-state involvement or our nation-state involvement in those organizations. Well, we've seen that with NATO, actually. Sure. At moving forward, as we look at how the EU and NATO relate to each other, there is a lot of discussion now 
about how uh, a European-only defense force could potentially be created, which could deal with defense-related issues, perhaps without the Americans. Most people talk about it within a transatlantic framework, um, but certainly there are those in Europe who want to see uh, more distance uh, mm -hmm. between the United States and Europe. In the kind of world that we live in, where we see the Russian Federation attempting to destabilize our systems and the the Chinese Communist Party doing the same thing and others on a, in a smaller way in specific places. If Europe and the United States don't find ways to work together, um, that we will ultimately lose the battle for the framing of the future global order. Together, we have the potential to shape it. Apart from each other, it will shape us. The entire architecture for the global environment that we, all of us at least, and our parents have lived our lives in, was designed by Europeans and Americans after the chaos of World War II. All of the multinational uh, structures that govern our lives, we created them together with the Europeans. It's, in my mind, crucially important that we defend them. And we need to do that in cooperation with our friends and allies in Europe. Uh, you know, I'm as patriotic and American as I think you're going to find, but anybody who believes that the United States can stand alone and shape the world system in 2019 is living a fantasy. We need allies to enable us to be able to do that. Now, we can lead, and we can be perhaps a major definer, but if we're going to be able to carry out our vision for the way the world ought to look, then we need friends and allies. The place to go to find the most of those is in Europe, but in the end, the countries that bring together the most uh, capacity and capability to enable us to continue to define the world system together with them is in Europe. And uh, increasingly, that means the multinational structures of the European Union, and that means the European Parliament. So in the end, um, if we intend for Americans to enjoy the quality of life that they enjoy and to share the burdens of managing the global order, then the place we go to look for allies and friends to do that is in Europe. And therefore, uh, the European Parliament matters, and therefore, elections to it matter. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jan. Really appreciate having you on the show. Pleasure to be with you. Okay, stepping away from looking at Europe, we want to give you a brief update about some other events around the world. On December 19, 2018, protests in Sudan that started around the cost of living led to the overthrow of dictator Omar al-Bashir on April 11, 2019. Demonstrations continue today as protesters push for civilian-led transition instead of military rule. Dissent in Algeria also exploded into protests on February 22nd following the announcement by 82-year-old President Abdelaziz Bouteflika that he would seek a fifth five-year term. His resignation on April 2nd has not stopped protesters from demanding greater freedom and a renewal of the entire political system. On our next podlet, we're going to take a deeper dive into what protests mean for a democracy and how they can help strengthen it. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at IRI Global or on our blog at www.democracyspeaks.org for updates on global issues. And make sure to leave us a review and give us your feedback. The only way more people hear about this podcast is if Apple's algorithm notices us. So rate us and leave a comment. Until next time, I'm Francesca Gortsunian, and thanks for listening to Global.